Welcome to the podcast of Pengrove Community Church. We exist to bring glory to God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus. Our church is located about 45 minutes north of San Francisco, and if you live in the area, we'd love to have you join us. You can also learn more about us online at pengrovechurch.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, this morning we, uh, we have come to the end of our series through the book of Hebrews. It's been a beautiful journey. And we'll be starting a new series next week, going through the Gospel of John. Been here for a few years now and been keeping track of all the different books of the Bible that we've gone through. And I think it'll be really good for us to spend some time in the Gospel of John, looking at the teachings of Jesus himself. Because all these other books that we go through, they're, they're about Jesus and about the teachings of Jesus and the implications of what Jesus did and, and so forth. But but we haven't spent a ton of time in the actual teachings and miracles and deeds of Jesus. So we'll be doing that in the Gospel of John. Before we read the passage this morning, I want to give you a a little preview to help you understand it better. The author in this passage is wrapping things up and giving a final benediction. He goes through a a few items of personal business. He asks them to pray for him. He says that he hopes to see them soon. He gives them some news about our partner in ministry named Timothy. He says that Timothy's been released, implying released from prison. And I always pause at things like that in the Bible where where it's just almost shocking if you really think about it. This guy was in prison because he was a Christian. He was in prison for the sake of of the gospel. He was happily in prison for the sake of the gospel. He considered it an honor, I'm sure, like all of the early Christians did, to suffer and to be persecuted and even imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And what a sharp contrast that is to the incredible comfort uh, we live in as Christians here in modern America. And, And sadly, what a sharp contrast that is to the incredible apathy that, that so many people who call themselves Christians live in today. These people, the people that we read about in the scriptures, were, were willing to die for the sake of the gospel. And, and I always have to pause at, at reminders of that truth. So the author's going through this personal business, and, and there's a lot of meaning to it. You know, so we, we can pause there at the mention of Timothy being in prison, and we can look at what he says about greetings from the saints in Italy and so forth, and you'll see this in the text in just a moment. Uh, and there's, it's important, all of these things that he says, all of the things that he mentioned, um, they, they can be used to help us understand uh, the who, what, when, why, and so forth of the New Testament and all of the people involved and all the missionary journeys and all of that stuff. And, and I'm saying all that to say all that other stuff, all the personal business is important, but we're going to focus basically all of our time this morning on the benediction. In the middle of the text, he gives them this benediction. And we do a benediction every week here at the end of the service, so, so you probably know what a benediction is, but maybe you don't know the full meaning of it. Benediction literally means good word. It is a word of blessing for people. In this context, what we have in this text is a timeless word of blessing for all of God's people, including you and including me. 
in the Bible, benedictions essentially take God's promises and put them in the form of expected blessings. Sometimes they can sound sort of odd or formal or overly religious, but there's real meaning and real power to these words. Real meaning and real power. I remember one time being at a, a conference in Southern California. It was a conference for church leaders, and I went with the, the team I was working with at the time. And one of the speakers there was this guy named Dallas Willard. Anybody know who Dallas Willard is? Wrote a number of books, used to speak. He was actually a, a philosopher at the University of Southern California. His whole career, he was a professional philosopher, but he was also a deeply Christian man with many wonderful things to say about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. And he spoke at this conference about following Jesus, and at the end, he gave a benediction. And he stood up, and he put his hand out like this, and he looked into the audience, and he looked at people's faces, and he shared a benediction that comes from the scriptures, much like the one that we're going to look at today. And there was almost tangible power to, to what he said that morning, to that good word. The benedictions, as one pastor said, they, they reach down into our deepest hopes. They train us to have God-sized expectations for the future. So, so this is what you should expect this morning. For these words to reach down into your deepest hopes, sometimes the hopes that you don't even know that you have. One of the great problems of the human condition is that we have these desires and we chase all of these things that we think are going to fulfill our desires and they don't. We have an idea of what we think we're hoping for and oftentimes we're wrong. But God knows what you're truly hoping for. He knows your deepest hopes, your real desires and benedictions touch those things. They, they train us to have God-sized expectations for our future, and they bring grace into our everyday lives. They bring real divine grace into our lives for this morning, in this week, in this year, and into the future. So that's what we have in store for us this morning. If you will, please stand for the reading of God's word way for us to honor the Word of God. I'm going to read the text for us, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 through 25. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated and join me as I pray for us. Father, as we come under the power 
in wisdom and truth of your word. I pray that we would receive it gladly, that we would pay close attention to it, that you would grant us understanding and, uh, and help us to apply it to our lives. This is what we need for our souls, God. We know that your son said that your word is his food. And we know that the Bible teaches that it's our food too. This is our sustenance. This is what keeps us going. So God, I pray that you would feed us this morning with your word, that you would refresh and restore our souls, that you would strengthen us to, to obey you and follow you and to, to deal with all the things that we need to deal with in life. Sometimes it's hard to believe that your word really has supernatural power like that, but we believe, God. Give us faith. We believe. Help our unbelief and help us to see a powerful bearing of fruit from this word in our lives. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want you to notice how the benediction begins in verse 20. Now may the God of peace. It begins with God. And, and we're going to focus first then on the God of peace. And then we're going to, we'll break it up kind of into three sections. It's verses 20 and 21 are the benediction that we're going to be focusing on. And the first section is the God of peace. And then we'll talk about the resurrected shepherd. And finally, we'll finish with the promise of future grace. But it begins with God. According to the Bible, all good things begin with God. Everything good ultimately finds its source in him. Uh, the, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato would talk about the, the realm of the forms, this sort of like heavenly ethereal realm where goodness existed and truth and beauty and love and peace and all of these things that we all long for existed sort of abstractly in this, this platonic heaven as it, as it became known. But what the Bible teaches is that all of those things exist not in some ethereal philosophical realm of the forms. They exist in God. So everything good you've ever experienced in this world ultimately comes from God. Indeed, everything comes from God. In the beginning, it says God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God planned our redemption. God sent Jesus to accomplish our redemption. When you look at the story of the Bible in the beginning, God created everything and it was very good. And then Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned in the Garden of Eden and chaos was brought into the world. We were separated from God. And the rest of human history has been the process of God bringing us back to him. Has been the process of God accomplishing our redemption. So God sent Jesus for our redemption. And the purpose of our redemption is to restore peace. It says God is the God of peace. And the purpose of our redemption is to restore peace between us and God, to restore peace in our souls. Anybody ever feel like they're lacking peace in their soul? Well, God sent Jesus to restore peace in your soul, to restore peace in the whole universe, because God is a God of peace. But in the meantime, we can ask, why does the world seem so chaotic? Why is the world so chaotic? 
if you do a, a little survey of the last few years, COVID comes along and shuts down the world and alters human history. Russia invades Ukraine, inflation skyrockets. The government threatens to shut down again. Hamas attacks Israel. Another mass shooting happens. The economy teeters on the verge of collapse. It often feels like the world is hanging on by a thread and it could collapse into chaos at any moment. Why is the world like that? For many people, it's not just what they see on the news, it's what they see when they wake up every morning. It's not just chaos on the other side of the world, it's chaos in their homes, in, in their lives. Modern life can be so busy and overwhelming and feel so chaotic. I know for many young people, it feels impossible to balance raising kids and working multiple jobs and cleaning the house and getting some exercise and spending time with friends. For some people, it's not just busyness. There's chaos in their relationships. There's always some drama. There's always some strife and discord, whether it's at work or with their spouses or the extended family. In the midst of all of this, deep down in every human heart, what we really want is peace. Because we hate uncertainty. We hate conflict in our relationships. We hate it when things are out of place and out of control. We want stability. We want to be happy and relaxed and confident in the future. We want peace. In other words, we want God. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him, that is God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The good news of the gospel in a world filled with chaos where everybody deep down, whether they know it or not, is longing for peace. And if you're longing for peace, that means you are longing for the God of peace. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, you have God. Through Jesus, you have God. Christianity is not a list of rules that you follow. I've said this 10,000 times, and I'm going to keep saying it until people stop believing it. Christianity is not a list of rules that you follow where you try really hard to be good so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's not a list of religious things that you can do to make God happy with you or to make up for the wrong that you've done. Christianity is the good news that Jesus came to die so that we can be redeemed and restored, so that we can be adopted into God's family, that Jesus came down to fix our broken relationship with God by paying the penalty for our sins against God. And the good news is that through Jesus, in his life, in his death and resurrection, by trusting in Jesus, by saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I, I admit it, I've done wrong, by trusting in him to, to forgive you and to pay for all the wrong things that you've done, you can be united with God. And God alone can give you peace. I really want to emphasize this truth, that God alone can give you peace. If you really think about it, only God can guarantee peace because only God controls all things. Other things and other people may promise peace, but they can't guarantee it. 
because they can't control all possible variables. Nobody else has enough knowledge. Nobody else has enough power. I remember shortly after we finished college, one of my very best friends got a, a job at an investment firm. He's a really smart guy. He went to a good school, and he got a job at this fancy investment firm. It was a pretty successful firm, and a lot of people there went to Ivy League universities, things like that. But I remember him saying, after a number of years at this firm, him saying that it was so frustrating and so unsatisfying working there because he finally realized that in the end, it, it's just gambling. In the end, trying to figure out the stock market and say, well, the markets in Japan are gonna, are gonna go up and that means that in China, you know, this is gonna be devalued, which is gonna affect the, the bond market and then the equities and blah, blah, blah. Trying to figure all of that out, even with all those smart people, even with thousands of employees and computers and decades of research, in the end, they were basically just guessing what was gonna happen with the markets. And that has proven true over and over again. Anybody know who Warren Buffett is? I, ho I hope so. Unless you've been living under a rock, everybody knows who Warren Buffett is. He, he famously did this challenge where he challenged investors to see if they could beat the stock market over a 10-year period, if they could beat the S&P 500. And without going too far down this little rabbit trail, the basic idea was, can you pick which individual stocks are gonna do better than the other ones. And so all of these brilliant people, these hedge funds, these investment managers, they all signed up and they tracked the data for 10 years and there was a $10 million prize on the line and they all lost. They couldn't do it. There's just too much information. Th think about this and we'll get to the point in just a moment, but follow with me just a little bit longer. How the stock market performs depends on the earnings of individual companies, all kinds of individual companies. It depends on decisions by leadership in those companies. It depends on decisions made by government officials. It depends on the greed and fear of millions of people. It depends on what happens between China and Taiwan, between Russia and Ukraine. It depends on literally millions of factors. Nobody has the ability to control all of those things. Nobody has the ability to even understand them, let alone control them. We're not smart enough. Even with the help of AI and all the computers in the world, we're not smart enough. But God is. God alone is smart enough to comprehend every fact in the universe. God alone is powerful enough to control all things. So much of the pain in our lives comes from us seeking peace by us trying to control everything. We want to control every little facet of our lives and get all of our ducks in a row and optimize and organize everything so that we can finally have peace. But we're not God. <laughs> We're never going to be able to control all things. Only God can. And he literally controls everything. The Bible says that he controls the hearts of kings. That he controls the weather. That he controls the roll of the dice. Therefore, God alone can guarantee peace. 
And for you and me, this is not just a fact about what God can do. If you're a Christian, it's a promise. It's a good word. It's a blessing. No matter what happens in your life, you can be at peace because God is a God of peace who controls all things. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. John 16, 33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I want you to notice something about those two passages. I want you to notice what they have in common, namely Jesus. As Christians, our peace comes through Jesus. You cannot have God. You cannot have the peace of God. You cannot have the God of peace except through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 20, the author shifts his focus to the resurrection. Look again at verse 20. It says, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The fact that God rose Jesus from the dead is a good word, a benediction for you and me. It's a good word for Christians who are facing hardship in this life. One, one thing I know for sure about every single person in this room is that we are all going through something hard. And if we're not going through something hard right now in this moment, we will be next week or next month or next year. Suffering, sadness and pain and trials, those things are always going to be present in this world and in your life. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, life will always be hard. But that's okay because our hope as Christians is not in this world. It's not in this life. Do you see the significance of that? If you can get to the place where you believe Jesus, where you trust God, and you put your hope in the next life as he commands you to do, then when this life disappoints you, it won't be so devastating. We have another life to come. As Christians, this life is not the end for us. I love what Randy Alcorn says. He says, for Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we will too. Because Jesus rose from the dead at the end of your life, if you are in Christ, when you die, you will raise from the dead to eternal life just like Jesus did. So if, the, if this life doesn't go how you hoped, that's okay. What this means, this resurrection of Jesus that we too will experience, what it means is that this life is just a tiny speck on the timeline of eternity. A tiny speck. I always think of this, this great philosopher, Peter Van Inwagen, 
He's done a lot of work on the problem of evil and suffering. Like, like if God is perfectly good and all-powerful, why is there so much evil in this world? If God is perfectly good and all-powerful, how could he allow things like the Holocaust and child abuse and, and disease and, and all of these things? And one thing that Peter Van Inwagen points out is that according to the biblical timeline, all of human history with all of the suffering and sadness and pain and evil that we see in human history in the end will be just a brief blip at the very beginning of history. History is going to go on for billions and billions and trillions and trillions of years. And one day, we will look back at human history that we thought was filled with so much evil and suffering and sadness, and it'll be just a brief moment at the beginning of, of all of history. And in those billions and billions and trillions of years to follow, after this world is long gone, after our lives are, are long past, in, those, in that eternity that we have to look forward to, God has an eternity of blessing and joy that will far eclipse anything that we experience in this life. This life is just a brief moment of testing and shaping before your real life begins. As J.R.R. Tolkien said, author of The Lord of the Rings, he said, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus means that one day everything sad will come untrue. Everything sad will come untrue. That's a good word. That is a hopeful and grace-filled word for your life and for my life. And in the meantime, until that day, we have Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. The author reminds us in verse 20 that Jesus is our shepherd. So I want you to think for a moment about the most famous sheep and shepherd passage in the Bible, Psalm 23, one of my all-time favorite passages. How does it go? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, and he goes on and he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Picture that for a moment. He makes me lie down in green pastures on a sunny day with the wind blowing through the trees. He leads me beside still waters. Beautiful, calm, peaceful, still waters reflecting the sunlight. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Who is with me? Who is with you? Well, if Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, then it's Jesus who is with us every day of our lives, every moment, every hour, every step that we take, Every time we wake up, Jesus is with us. The very same Jesus that we read about in our Bibles. The very same Jesus who promised that he can give us living water so we'll never be thirsty again. Who said that he is the bread of life so we will never be hungry again. The same Jesus that we read about who is just bursting with goodness and truth, full of wisdom and kindness, full of love and mercy and compassion, full of world-shaking power. He is the shepherd who watches over you 
and leads you and guides you every minute of your life. Now that is a good word. That is a blessed promise. So you wouldn't want to mess it up, right? All of this blessing from God that we've been talking about, we better not fall into sin. We better be good or else we might lose all of this blessing from God. Well, at least that's the way that people normally think. But the good news of the gospel, the, of the eternal covenant mentioned in verse 20, looking again at verse 20, notice that last phrase, by the blood of the eternal covenant. This covenant that you and I are a part of with God, it's like a contract or an agreement with God. What this covenant says is that all of the blessing from God is not contingent upon your good behavior. Think about that. It is not contingent upon your good behavior. The author reminds us that the blood of Jesus, that is payment for our sins, also was blood that ratified it. It signed, it sealed this new covenant. And it was his blood, not yours. And we we don't have time to go back through all of the details of this. The author spends a lot of time in the book of Hebrews for the past 13 chapters describing this new covenant and the significance of it and the the significance of the blood of Jesus and all of that. But right now, I want to give you just a, a brief summary of this eternal covenant, this new covenant that we're talking about right now. It comes from the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 through 34. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is the agreement between us and God. This is the deal between you and God. God says, as part of this deal, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In other words, you can't mess it up. If you are a Christian, then whatever you've done, God has already forgiven you and forgotten about it. Whatever you do tomorrow or or next week, God will forgive you and he will remember it no more. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's a good word, isn't it? I want to draw your attention to another great promise of the new covenant that we see in that passage from Jeremiah. It says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Now, now what does that mean for your life? That promise right there, that agreement from God, that promise that he will put his law on your heart, that, that he'll write it on your heart. What does that mean for your life? It means, verse 21 of our text, that God will equip you 
He will equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. God equips you for doing good, for doing his will, by putting his law within you and writing it on your heart. Recently, I was introduced to this way of thinking about challenges and goals in life and, and things like that. And it's a little bit cheesy and simplistic, but, but I do think there's some real insight to it. I was talking with my buddy, and he, he shared this with me. It's the idea of the difference between or the, the process of going through do, have, and be. Do, have, and be. And, and you can put those in different orders, but let me give you a basic example. If you want to have a successful career, you have to do a bunch of things. Maybe study hard, go to college, do an internship, show up on time. You've got to do all of this stuff. And if you do all of the stuff, then you'll have what you want. You'll have a successful career. And if you have a successful career, then you can be a successful person. You can be happy. And as Christians, we know that's not, not actually true. Having a successful career won't actually make you happy and, and fulfilled. But it's a simple example of the concept. It's how you might apply the, the do, have, be model. Now let's apply it to our passage. If you have put your trust in Jesus as your one and only hope for salvation, if you are a Christian, then this is what you have in Christ. That's what we've been talking about all along this morning, what we have in Christ. We have a relationship with the God of peace. We have the hope of the resurrection. We have Jesus as our good shepherd, and all of it is sealed and guaranteed by the unfailing, eternal new covenant. That's what we have. In verse 21, gives us the do and be. Through Jesus, through the power of his Holy Spirit, God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That you may do his will. What this means is that God wants you to do his will. And his will, that is his desire, is revealed in his word, in the Bible. If you want to do God's will, then read the New Testament and obey it. Do what it says. As you may know, that's a lot harder than it sounds. It seems so simple. Just read the Bible and do what it says. But the fact of being a human being is that we are not born with the ability to just do what God says, let alone even understand what he says. Be because of sin, the sin that came into the world with Adam and Eve and corrupted human nature, all humans are such that we can't just obey God by trying really hard. We need God to help us, to equip us to do his will. And the good news is that he does. He gives you everything that you need, as the Apostle Peter wrote, for life and godliness. The basic meaning of that word equip is to prepare, to, to make ready for use. And here's the picture that we get in the scriptures. When God saves somebody, he gives them a, a new heart that prepares them for a new 
life. He gives them the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, to empower them to resist and overcome sin. He gives them the Holy Spirit to help them and and comfort them. And then God goes to work equipping you. That word equip carries these connotations of adjusting and, and shaping and molding. So when you become a Christian, God changes you, gives you a new heart, and he starts to adjust you almost like a chiropractor, it adjusts a person to get them back into alignment. God reaches into your soul and adjusts your beliefs and your desires and gets you into alignment with his will. In, in getting his law written within your hearts and getting that new heart and those new desires is so essential to a successful Christian life of actually doing the will of God. I always think of this sermon that I heard from this, this preacher named Paul Washer. And in this sermon, Paul Washer talks about how so many people think about Christianity and, and religion. He, he, he describes it like, like a person deciding, okay, I'm going to become a Christian. My life's all messed up. I don't want to live like this anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buckle down and go to church and, and do all this stuff. And so I'm going to stop doing all the things that I love to do you know, drinking with my buddies and, and chasing women around or, or whatever it might be. You know, you might think of like a, a young guy in college who's part of a fraternity who decides he wants to be a Christian. Well, I'm going to stop partying. I'm going to stop, you know, chasing girls around. I'm going to stop cheating on my tests. I'm going to stop, you know, stealing or, or what, I'm going to stop doing all of this stuff that I love to do. And I'm going to start doing all the stuff that I hate to do, like getting up early to go to church and to pray and, and to read the Bible and, and all of that. And what Paul Washer says is that's not a Christian. That's a lost man with religion. A Christian is somebody who does these things because he wants to do them. A Christian is somebody who, who, isn't, who isn't setting aside all the things that they desire to do the things that they don't desire. It's somebody with new desires, a new mind, a a new heart, that is primarily how God equips a person to do his will. He gives them a new heart with new desires, and then he starts shaping and adjusting and mending and restoring your life one day at a time. You see, God works to change us, not from the outside in by imposing a list of rules and regulations. He changes us from the inside out by transforming us with his love in grace and supernatural power. As it says in verse 21, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And you know what's pleasing in the sight of God? People with a, a certain kind of character, a certain kind of disposition, a certain kind of attitude, a certain kind of heart. It's not just about what you have. It's not just about what you do. It's about who you are. God doesn't merely want you to have certain things and do certain actions. He wants you to be a certain way. It makes me think of kids and and parents and and how good parents want to raise their kids. When, When you're raising kids, you teach them first what to do. But obviously, in the end, you hope that it goes deeper than that eventually you want them to do the right thing without any reminders or instruction. You just want them 
to do it on their own. Eventually, you want them to become certain kind of people with kindness and truth and hard work just flowing naturally from who they are, right? Well, God is the same way with us. God wants us to do the right thing, not out of obligation, but because we want to. God wants us to be certain kinds of people. So he wants us to have what we have in Christ. He wants us to do his will, but he wants us to be filled with the Spirit, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. What that means is he wants you to be the kind of person that you walk around in your day-to-day life in what naturally flows out of you, who you are inside. Your character is marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I think that was one of the main points of the most famous sermon ever preached, talking about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Towards the beginning of the sermon, Jesus goes through a series of basic commandments from the Old Testament, and he, and he takes them and sort of reshapes them to shift the focus from what we do to who we are. Let me give you one, one quick example. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said of those of old, or to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry at, with his brother will be liable to judgment. See, he shifts the focus from the action to the attitude, for, from the behavior to the heart. God, ultimately, in the end, is more interested in your heart than your actions. He's more interested in who you are than what you do. And here's the good news, the good word of this benediction. God God himself has promised to equip you to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. And, And so you see, the idea is that we are not supposed to merely do certain things, but we're supposed to be a certain way. And that can come across as a burden. Okay, like I've got to figure out how to be this kind of person. And what I'm trying to say is it's not a burden for you to worry about. It's not a responsibility for you to bear. It's a promise from God that God will change you from the inside out. It's a beautiful, fully guaranteed promise that God will transform your life from the inside out. And so when you are struggling when you have failed for the thousandth time, when you say things that you wish you wouldn't say to your kids or your partner or whoever, when you get frustrated with the way that you are, when you lament the fact that you are angry or that you're worrisome or that you're whatever, and you've been that way for years and years and years and you feel like you can't change, remember this promise. God is working in you. It's not always as fast as you want. It's not always easy or as smooth as you want. But God is working in you to give you a new heart and new desires. He is transforming you from the inside out. And he'll do it, verse 21, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are trusting in you.
to do what you have promised. We thank you for all that we have in your son Jesus in you. We thank you for the peace and love that you've shown us and given us. And we pray, Lord, for you to just continue doing this work. Help us, Lord, to understand how to, to work with you in these things. God, show us, uh, show us what you want us to do and help us to do it. God, show us who you want us to be. And Lord, make us that way. We are trusting in you to, to change us, to help us, to be with us every day. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.